0: anyone who attacks the idea of David Foster Wallace fans, because in my mind, that's not an abstract lit bro. That is people who are my friends who I know from these conferences, many of them who are not white males like me, many of them who are, you know, women and people of color and lesbian gays, Bisexual trans members of our community. Who I'm protective of these people. I don't want them grouped in with just being lit bros. And I could give you some examples of the worst offenders here. Which I would say Jonathan Franzen, in his essay "Farther Away" in the New Yorker in 2010, I felt like one of the reasons he blamed Wallace's suicide on Wallace's seeking attention from his fans rather than from people who truly loved him. So
1: fuck mm-hmm. you, Jonathan Franzen. Um, This is going to lead with that. (laughs) um, You know how they do those little clips at the beginning where it's like, you know, just like a goofy moment. It's It's just going to be like, it's just going to be, so fuck you, Jonathan Franzen. And then, then the music will play and then they will say, welcome to Eminent America. (laughs) Welcome to Eminent Americans, a podcast about the contemporary American intellectual scene. I'm your host, Dan Oppenheimer, a self anointed intellectual and uh, all-around man of leisure. My guest on the podcast today is Matt Booker. Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Dan. Matt is the founding president of the International David Foster Wallace Society and the managing editor of the Journal of David Foster Wallace Studies. Since 2002, he's been in charge of the Primo Numero Uno David Foster Wallace Listserv, Wallace L. I'm not sure if there's a secondary one, but if there is, yours is the primary one. He is organizing the twenty twenty-four David Foster Wallace Conference in Austin, and he is the co-host of the Concavity Show, which is a podcast about literature that often touches on Wallace and Wallace-related themes, though it's not exclusively a DFW podcast. His writing, much of which is not about David Foster Wallace, has appeared in Publishers Weekly, Electric Literature, the Dublin Review of Books and the Austin Chronicle, among other places. His first novel, The Beeland Deck, is out now. Congrats on that, Matt.
0: Thanks.
1: And as, as you might have guessed, you being a listener, by this point in the introduction, Matt is on the show to talk about David Foster Wallace-related matters. In particular, I wanted to talk to Matt about two things. One is the world of hardcore DFW enthusiasts, the people who populate the listserv, attend the conferences, read and contribute to the journal, and so on. So what are the contours of this world? Who are the major players? What are the key themes? And is there a certain kind of person who Wallace has an especially intense effect on? And then, relatedly, is the other thing I wanted to talk to him about, which is the discourse around so-called David Foster Wallace bros, and then the connected discourse to that around Wallace's personal history of exploitative and, in some cases, abusive treatment of women, so I wanted to talk to Matt. Is the DFW bro a real thing? If it is a real thing, is Matt not just a bro, but the ultimate bro? <laughs> if it's not, true. <laughs> if it's not a real thing out in the world, then the question would be why has the concept of it become a real thing out in the world? Was it what is it standing in for? What is it pointing toward? And and then just more generally, how much should we care as readers of Wallace about his record of his personal life of treating women? Badly. So Matt, uh, thanks for being on the show. And I guess I want to start before we get into all of those, in a sense, more fraught issues around Wallace, just with your DFW origin story. So when did you first encounter him? When did your now, I think, decades-long love affair with his writing begin? And and so so what's the story? What's the backstory?
0: Um, Yeah, that's a great question, Dan. I first saw Infinite Jest in paperback in a huge display at the Tattered Cover Bookstore in Cherry Creek in Denver. And this was my all-time favorite bookstore. It was four stories tall and one floor was like mostly like new releases. And they had, you know, the way that they would put an end cap in the supermarket with, you know, Pepsi or Frosted Flakes or something. Yeah. A mountain of books. Like this was the hot thing. They had ordered, you know, hundreds of copies of the book. And, you know, it was relatively cheap as a paperback. Like, I don't know, t- 10, 15 bucks. And so I I knew nothing about it. I'd seen his name before in some college work. This is in Denver, 1997.
1: So this is the paperback. So this is after the hardcover has been a best selling yeah. phenomenon. Okay.
0: Yeah. And like I say, it wasn't really on my radar back then. You know, there wasn't uh, really the internet as we think of it now. Like right. you actually had to like read a magazine or go to the bookstore to see what was coming out read the newspaper and I was an English major, but I didn't read a ton of like non assigned books. I was reading coursework, um, but I I bought the book and I took it home and I remember I had a long weekend and I started reading it. I probably read 300 pages of it the first weekend and I knew right away, I felt this, that it was the best book that I had ever read within about 300 pages. And so me finishing the book and the next few weeks was one of just pure excitement and pleasure and like a lot of people i had this sensation of the first thing that i wanted to do after i read that book was talk to someone about it but i didn't know anyone else who had read the book so i gave the book to my friend eric bush and said you have to read this so that i can talk to someone about it and to his credit <laughs> he did and we talked about it and you know i went online to try to find um you know more about the book this is probably, you know, late in 1997, 98, that somewhere in there, I found an email list. You know, there was no Google.com. I found a community of people all on an email listserv, which I had never joined a listserv before. And, you know, it's all text-based. It can be anonymous, right? You can have a kind of fake email. And it was the smartest group of people I had ever talked about books with in my life. And I... It changed my life. I was immediately blown away by the level of discussion. You know, it was the best I had found.
1: But this was not a Wallace email list, right?
0: It was. No, this is the Wallace email list. I thought oh, it okay. Existed, it existed from 1996. I didn't oh, discover I... it until about 1998. Okay. And there were people on there who were mathematics professors, journalists, other writers, fans really good mix of people who often they would reply like a hundred times a day. So keeping up with it was very addictive to me. And you got to know a lot about these people. And so after I graduated in 99, I moved to Brooklyn and that's where a lot of these other people were. So I started meeting some of them in person. I had the opportunity then also to see David Foster Wallace on book tour, come Mm -hmm. through Manhattan on book tour, and so there were a lot of fans who would actually go to the readings and when a new book would come out it was a big deal so being alive during that time of a fan where he was alive and publishing stories and books that was a really exciting time so that's sort of like the before time and then after you know 2008 with his death
1: the one time i saw him was at the Barnes and Noble in oh god i'm going to forget but it was in lower manhattan union around square no, or a, not Western union place. square Aster place. place. I saw yes. him at the Astor Place Barnes & Noble, and I think the book was Brief Interviews with – is that the name of the yeah. – Brief Interviews with Hideous Men. So, so were you at that? Were we at the same reading in – what are the odds? No, that must have been kind of early 2000s, right? Were you still uh, in New York? I
0: actually, actually think that was the, the paper back in 99. So,
1: Oh, I, that's possible. Yeah.
0: I was not there yet. So I moved to New York in August or September of 99. Okay, But I did see him at the Union Square, Barnes & Noble. I saw him at the Public Theater. I saw him several times in Manhattan, usually on book tour.
1: So to go back to this sort of formative moment for you, you pick up this book, you don't know much about it, but it's got this massive display at this bookstore. You're an English major. You're the kind of person who would like to be in touch with what's happening in the world of contemporary literature. You pick up the book without any particular expectations and not... Kind of loaded up with all of this complicated sort of set of, you know, who you imagine he should be, what you as whoever you are should, what your orientation to the book should be. Just pretty fresh. Relatively, you were sort of relatively virginal territory and you just fell in love with the book. And I'm curious why that is. And I should confess the grave sin of not having read Infinite Jest. I have read much maybe even most of his nonfiction stuff um but I'm not as, nearly as big a non-fiction a reader as I am a nonfiction reader so do, you know tell me what it is about infinite jest yeah. so, that was I, so I compelling mean, half of the, book, to the young you, man
0: yeah so half of the book is about young adults and young kids at a tennis academy and you know that being around that age you wanting to see yourself in you know one of the main characters Hal in candenza who is this uh, extremely bright but flawed and depressed young person that part helped I, the other part is about aa and a halfway house and mm-hmm. then there's some other stuff about canadian terrorists quebecois terrorism and search for this cartridge but the halfway house stuff i had no experience with but like being in a basically dormitory with other kids talking about achievement that really resonated with me. And also you could just tell the men had an enormous vocabulary, intellect, you know, it's an encyclopedic novel. So you learn about all kinds of subjects. Also with some emotion to it and a heart behind it, that it's not just showing off. I think that the book wouldn't be as popular today if it was just about showing off. Like there is something truly, deeply sad and moving at the core of that book. That combination of things It's very hard to find in any novel.
1: Yeah, it's a tough question to put to somebody like, why did you love something, right? Because most of the time, at the most fundamental level, the answer is, I don't know. It just speaks to you. It kind of, because there's lots of novels about young people in that kind of comparable situation that at that level of kind of abstraction... Um, should speak to you just in a purely demographic way that don't, or you're like, oh, that's fine, right? And then you can deconstruct it into the language, you can deconstruct it into the the sentence structure, the heart. Um, I mean, I guess maybe the heart is the closest to it, right? You you sense on the, I'm speaking for you, <laughs> yeah. but you sense on the other side of the language some sort of heart or mind that speaks to your experience or sees you in some profound way. I guess one question I have, this listserv, you know, what type of person is on it? So it's a very bright person. So it's an intellectually rich, fairly cerebral group of people. Is it heavily masculine? I mean, that is certainly sort of, that's a characterization or maybe a caricature of his so readers.
0: In my experience, and this is, again, over you know 25 years, is that it's closer to 50-50 than people expect. So the, I would say the readers of Infinite Jest are closer to 50-50, maybe 60-40 in favor of men. It's not, in my experience, and again, you look at the table of contents of our journal, look at our panels at our conferences, there are lots of women involved in the leadership of our organization, long time, not just fans, but scholars who have published books on him. So that I think that stereotype of like the lit bro, or this is something for bros, is definitely more pronounced after his death when a lot of people felt compelled to go back and read this book on their shelf that they didn't have. They hadn't had read before, which was infinite yeah. chest. And a lot of those guys pushed it on their girlfriends. And I think, <laughs> right. and I think that's a bad look, right? Like and that never works out. Like my wife has never read infinite chest. It's right. not a deal breaker in our marriage. It was not a deal breaker for me to talk to a friend or be with anyone, but there's some real assholes out there who, when you get to the population size of a million people have read this book, the book has sold over two million copies worldwide. Right. That yeah, there's some percentage of those people who are just really jerks about it. And that's referenced, like I say, in even in that movie Promising Young Woman. It's let's illustrate this guy being a jerk by showing push. yeah, David Foster Wallace on her, well, like a girl he's trying to pick up. Let me
1: reframe a, the question, because I think if you had asked me If you'd asked me in, like, 2006, if I had to guess who would populate a listserv exclusively dedicated to David Foster Wallace, I would have said it mostly would have been guys, but not for the reasons that have anything to do with the DFW discourse. It's just I have certain notions of what certain kinds of communities and fandoms consist of, partially from my own participation in them, which is, I think there's a stereotype, but it's one that has some truth in it, that a certain kind of, like, obsessive, going deep into the sort of minutiae of a particular topic is a male thing. But you're saying that's not true, or you're saying that is true, but it's not necessarily reflective of the broader sort of fan base of Wallace. On that listserv in 1998, where, I don't know, are there a few hundred people or something like that?
0: Yeah, in my lived experience of having interacted with hundreds, if not thousands of Wallace fans, the reality of those interactions are much more 50-50 or 60-40 but the perception you know it is somewhat made up and we were talking about this uh at the conference I just got back from the DFW conference in Gettysburg yesterday and we were talking there like who here is a lit bro I'm now a suburban dad in my mid 40s I don't live in Brooklyn and brew beer and I'm not a PhD student which one of us would you say is a lit bro? Because people are complicated human beings. And right. even that, those lit bro stereotypes, like if you were to actually try to identify one, like what are some of the common
1: characteristics? Well, bro is a weird kind of misdirection in terms of a, a phrase because in our culture, we think of bro as this kind of hyper macho type, right? So it's a weird descriptor for like hyper literary Not to denigrate you and me, but we don't easily fit into the sort of bro category in other respects. We don't tend to be hyper-masculine or hyper-macho, you know, or at ease with like a lacrosse stick or whatever, whatever the stereotype is. Putting that aside, are there characterizations you would make of the people who are Wallace fans kind of... Non in a non-gender specific one. So is it a kind of, is it a hyper-intellectual crew? Is it a nerdy crew? Is it people who have a particular kind of, you know, some of that sort of specific demographic experience of having operated in like, say, academic spaces? Or he writes a lot about, you know, uh, like highly competitive tennis, or he talks about AA. You know, are there any characterization? And it's fine if the answer is no. I'm just wondering if there are any non-gender specific, non-politically or culturally fraught characterizations you can make of the type of people who care a great deal about David Foster Wallace.
0: Right. So they're all like me and that they're really (laughs) smart and have good, good taste in books. (laughs) It's really hard to generalize because I know so many of these people personally. And yeah, I do think most of them are, you know, on the smarter side of what they choose to read. But personally, I think they often have some kind of, um, Sensitivity to emotional awareness, too, that has maybe some of these people have been through addiction or trauma or familial problems that is reflected in his artwork. If you look at it as a work of art to say what draws you to this piece, and it's often something related to suffering. There's a lot of suffering in his work. And, you know, his story personally as a human being is tragic. And so there's people who would rather have something that is more, I don't know, complicated and problematic than something that's very simple and explainable in a lot of ways. But I'm just really hard to generalize, like I say, because in a lot of ways I am a stand in for the fan community. Right. And I've sort of either consciously or unconsciously cultivated that image of myself and, and, So I'm very defensive in some ways. If you're attacking the fan community, these are all my friends. And so like anyone criticizing them, like it is very hard for me not to take it personally. And this happens in media all the time where there's these generalizations of fans. And I just think, man, you don't know. You do not know these people. And they're open-hearted and smart and different than what you might imagine. Here's an example, even from gender point of view, like one trend at... Our conference this year, I would say, is a focus on explicating a lot of the heteronormativity in the books. And in Infinite Jest, there is a lot of play with um, transgenderism and looking at fans of his who are transgender. How do they feel about that? And having those panels at the conference. So we do try to be a community that is extremely open and accepting of all sort of critical viewpoints of him and his work but that's very hard to generalize to say the fans that i've met like i say a lot of them are older than me because wallace was older than me right like he's 15 years older than me and there's a generation of people older than him who are fans and then there's people who are just reading him like for the first time this year who are you know college students
1: maybe my last word on this for the moment is I am interested in fan communities. I've written about them a little bit. At one point, I thought that my first book, I had a book proposal was going to be on the communities of science fiction and fantasy fandom. And I did some reporting on that and went to conventions. Uh, I wrote a long article when I was a reporter at an alt weekly on the heavy metal fan community in in Western Massachusetts where I was working. And I think there are interesting generalizations you can make about fan communities, and they're different ones depending on the community, but I think to your point, if you're really looking closely, it's not going to be the generalizations that tend to percolate up to pop culture. Just to give an example from the heavy metal world that i sort of dipped into for a little while is like the first thing almost the first thing that struck me the minute i started hanging out with like metal fans and like guys in metal bands and things like that was like it's a bunch of socially awkward people like it's a nerd in a certain sense it's a nerd community right and you imagine what and maybe that's well known now but at the time and certainly in like the 80s when we were growing up the perception of the heavy metal community was satan worship it was of scary hairy dude's who were hyper-masculine and aggressive. But, like, the default member of that community is is not that. It's the last guy in the world who's going to bully you and sh- shove you into the high school locker. It's the guy who got shoved into the locker. So I, it's an interesting dynamic, and I understand your defensiveness, and I actually, because so much so often the typing of a community is a kind of simplistic and vulgar and often just profoundly inaccurate typing of the community. I guess my interest is, I think you can do it anyway, but you have to be very careful. And oftentimes the people who do it best are, to be frank, not people like you who are at the very epicenter of it. It's people who are maybe to some extent outsiders within that community. And it's often a community that's composed of outsiders in other realms in the world, but insiders in that particular community. So that's my, my monologue <laughs> is over, but, but, but I hear what you're saying.
0: Yeah, and I- Even the fact that there is a fandom is somewhat interesting and that a lot of writers who were born in 1962 don't have a society around them. They don't have conferences. And every year we have some journalist who comes to the conference and we've had documentary filmmakers and, you know, academic newsletter reports that come out from the conference conference but it's also like a dirty word. Fandom, if you're really smart, like if you're a professor, then you're not really a fan. It's a secret that you're a fan. So uh, there's this hierarchy where it's like the real scholars are up here and this is the public intellectuals up here. They're just above the fray of it all, which I have always hated that assumption because those are people too. And a lot of them love Taylor Swift. You know, a lot of them love... Uh, Guns and Roses or whatever it is that they love and they can't really be honest with themselves about it because they have to be a detached and critical about And so you get this sort of irony that Wallace hated which is like a detached air of superiority. And right. it's the opposite of what he was pushing for which is like forget irony and go with sincerity. And I sometimes think oh we're in the era of new sincerity and then I read stuff On Twitter and in literary magazines, saying, "Oh no, I'm I'm wrong. There actually is still a really strong, (laughs) detached air of superiority around a lot of this. Too cool for school. Right? What's cool?"
1: Well, not on this podcast, Matt. Well, I, I say that jokingly, but I actually, I'm glad you brought that up because I think, and I, I was thinking about like my hesitation around using the word fan before, I, I, before you came on, I was like, I wonder how careful I want to be about using that term because it has all the connotations that you talked about. But I think one of the things that's really interesting to me about the work that you've done in the community that you're a part of is like, look, like it's not that those hierarchies exist and you can superimpose them over everything you know, you guys have a peer-reviewed academic journal. You have people who are tenured faculty or participating in your stuff. You, you've you written books. You've published for mainstream publications. Like, you can still impose that frame on it, but what's interesting is I have no question, and I have no idea how this actually plays out, but I have no question you're trying to look forward the next 10, 20, 50 years and, and how David Foster Wallace's reputation is likely to fare in... In the world of letters broadly, but then within academia, like it is substantially dependent on the act on the activities of what we could call his fandom, um, you know, and, and other things too. And that's not true of every fandom, but because the particular Wallace fandom crosses all of these sort of professional academic boundaries, um. I just think it will. So, I mean, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. I mean, one one thing there that's actually helped us in a sort of silver lining way is this academic trend towards ad, adjunctification and non traditional scholars, and the fact that there aren't jobs for everyone who has a PhD, but those people are still smart, and let's say they do go to a conference and find this community of people that they love, and they don't end up as a tenured faculty, but they have a PhD, they're really smart, right. they have an MA. Um, often that benefits us because they're no longer going to these conference just to put on their CV. They're yeah. doing it because they truly love it. And so we've had the benefit of having a lot of people in here who haven't been able to get traditional academic jobs. And that's pretty much everywhere. I don't see that trend changing anytime soon. So those people who are Wallace people at heart can do it, in a way that they're not trying to climb the academic ladder. They're trying to, you know, actually get people to read what they write. And they found an audience of people that sort of will listen to any of that, will buy any of that. And like I say, a lot of, if you're an Edith Wharton scholar, a Dante scholar, like that's a lot harder. Walt Whitman society has good meetings, but if that's what American literature association is, all this conglomeration of like single author societies, and some of them are really small and insular. And in some of the big ones, like James Joyce Society, they have problems of their own that we don't have, which is like we don't have really this old guard that's been around for 50 years. Um, (laughs) So we are very accepting of new blood. And I'm hopeful that it's that sort of community that is will be self-sustaining in a way, because there is I, I mean, I do think Infinite Jest still reads very contemporary, even though it's almost 30 years old.
1: When I say this is important to the future's reputation, I think it's with this sort of vague hypothesis that, look, ultimately all these things depend on the text themselves, right? Does the the work itself pass some threshold of, quality is the wrong word, maybe just compellingness, right? But what the community does is it keeps putting the thing in front of people to pick it up and read it and then have that individual experience of it I do want to sort of just co-sign on that thing you said about you guys benefiting from the adjunctification of academic labor cuz actually the the previous episode of this podcast I'm talking to a guy who's exactly what you said it's a guy who got his PhD in English has this very marginal you know teaches adjunct at, at a school but but really his existence his literary intellectual existence is outside the academy there's not much margin for him in trying to place his stuff into peer-reviewed journals and adhere to all of the kind of various formal and informal norms of that. So he just writes about what he wants to write about, and he does it on Goodreads, and he does it on his Substack, deck, and he does it on his website, you know, and builds his own audience of people who are interested in what he's doing. And that, I think, that already is visible as an influence on, a much bigger influence on our broad literary culture than it probably was 20 or 30 years ago, but it'll probably only get bigger as we move forward. I mean, I guess one thing that I sort of wanted to ask you about is, how did these more formal kind of legitimizing entities that came into existence that evolved out of probably the listserv and some fundamental, like, how did they come to be? So you helped found this journal, what is it called, the the Journal of David the journal Foster Journal of, Wall-
0: of DSW Studies, yeah. Um, and then the
1: conference, the society, like, what's just the quick story of those so, things?
0: So, yeah, our first ever conference on David Foster Wallace was in 2009 in Liverpool, and that was... A graduate student who is now himself a public intellectual and scholar, David Herring, organized that. And there were several one day conferences after that. And it changed also when his archive went to the Ransom Center here in Austin. So yeah. the, the Ransom Center got more involved in 2010, 2011, 2012. But then in 2014 at ISU, the chair of the department there was retiring, and he was really a big believer in Wallace's work. His name was Charles Harris, and he helped organize and fund the first David Foster Wallace conference in the US that was like three days long and it was like a hundred people, like it was pretty significant. And so we wanted to do that again. That was 2014. We formed the society after the 2016 conference. And we, you know, we had enough infrastructure and networking by then to have plenty of material to publish and you know, people who wanted to formalize an organization outside of the conference. And the first journal came out in 2017. And then we planned to move the conference in, to Austin in 2020. And I was like, this is going to be the best year ever. 2020, <laughs> it's going to be amazing. I'm going to plan this huge conference with the Ransom Center. For what and date? It, uh, what, what, it, let's was, set it was June 1st. Okay,
1: June yeah. 1st, So it was great, right? It all went off as <laughs> planned.
0: <laughs> Spoiler alert, it actually yeah. did not. We had to cancel it shortly after they canceled South by Southwest. That was like a big wake-up call to me that like, oh my God, w- what's going on? And we didn't have one in the U.S. in 2021 either. Um, we co-sponsored a conference in Amsterdam in 2021, uh, which went off really well, but this was late 2021. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we had the conference here in Austin last year, 2022 at UT with Jennifer Egan as our keynote. So that that sort of like brings you up to about where we are now. It's going to be back in Austin next year.
1: And what about the journal? So what's the, give me the backstory on the journal.
0: So the journal, um, like I say, was part of the society's idea. It's sort of with every, literary society that's what you do is conferences and journals right and our first journal editor was a guy from australia who was really passionate about getting this started and then our second journal editor was from ireland so that's why we put international in there like wallace does have a big international readership he's infinite just has been translated into like 10 languages
1: um does it have an academic sponsor does the journal have an academic sponsor
0: So, no, we had talked about being distributed, like looking into being distributed by other presses, but it's totally independent, just run by the society, published by the society. And, you know, it's one of the few, like, benefits for joining the society is, like, get a copy of the journal. Yeah, Um, The articles are, you know, indexed in academic databases, so people who want to read the the material in it can find it electronically. Um, But it's still early. Like, I think a good journal really takes, like, 10 15 years to get its footing and yeah. uh you know that that for us it's all like volunteer right so no right. one's job is to run the conference or the journal um but we did have academics i mean university sponsorship of the conferences at, I, at ISU yeah. at Gettysburg this year and you know at UT there is institutional support you know from specific places and the Ransom Center as well has been very supportive
1: so Let's go to sort of full bore on the DFW bro thing. My sort of fuzzy memory is that that was not a thing until maybe the last six or seven years, seven or eight years or something like that. That was not a thing that accompanied him from like day one, that there was some community of male fans of his that were always trying to push his books on um, not just their girlfriends, but just like random women. They were sort of half trying to hit on at parties.
0: I think part of it was um, also due to the movie that came out in 2015, the end of the tour, where you have Jason Segel playing David Foster Wallace. And, you know, that's a much more visual aspect of, hey, this this guy looks like that. And I know this dirtbag over here reading Infinite Jest. He looks like that too. And, you know, it's a lot easier to watch a two-hour movie than read Infinite Jest. So a lot of people who who... They read, you know, the graduation speech, This Is Water. They watched a YouTube video of the speech. They that saw was, this that and, was at
1: Kenyon College, right? In what year?
0: Right. Kenyon College. Two thousand five. Okay. Um it wasn't published as a book until after he died. He didn't prepare it for publication or anything, but right. I, I, it was in the best American non required reading Dave Eggers did. But yeah, he's got these really like kind of low bar entry points into having, you know, read Wallace. Like I probably ten times more people have heard that speech or read it than, you know, have read one of his books. Um, and the same with the movie, even though it wasn't like a blockbuster movie or something, it was on the radar of people who liked something besides superhero movies. And so I think that there was a, that's kind of another, I don't know, quality of the lit bro. I would say is like not someone who's seriously engaged in the work. It's sort of a more light, lightly casual fan, not, a completist, per se.
1: Um, I mean, I want to... Also,
0: the Me Too movement. I mean, the Me Too movement is a big part of it.
1: Yeah. And I want to get to that in a minute, but I want to, like, I want to steel man the argument for the existence of a DFW bro. You said, you suggest this to me at a kind of conversation we had, you know, a month or two ago, that not that it exists in a meaningful, specific sense relative to Wallace, but that there is a type of guy who kind of wields a book or an author as kind of part of his kind of social armature or something like that. As we do with everything, right? As it could be with a band or a style of clothing or something like that. So, But I want to read something. I found an essay, just some random literary website by a guy named Jonathan Russell Clark. And it was a pro Wallace essay, but he was trying to sort of give his take on what the, the DFW bro guy is, and I'm going to quote him. He says, Wallace has become, for a lot of young men, a kind of marker of intellectual ability and hipness. Wallace was a genius who wore bandanas, who treasured his, quote, regular guyness, and spoke with a Midwestern drawl. His sentences, though complexly periodic and usually grammatically perfect, contained countless colloquialis- colloquialisms, making it seem like Br- Br- Wallace was brilliant, but just also a dude thinking about shit. This is an irresistible figure to aspire to, especially for young men like me. So I guess what I would, if I had to try and, you know, come up with, if there is such a thing as a DFW bro, I think what's complex about it is that it's actually probably a few different things. So this guy, because of his own sort of backstory, his own origins, is imagining that the thing he wants to emulate is somebody who has some literary sophistication and intellectual sophistication, but is like a regular guy. Too, so it's the kind of bandanaed part of Wallace. I think there's another I think
0: that's good. Like I actually <laughs> think that's better to be a regular guy than to be, you know, with the elbow patches and the pipe, right? And saying <laughs> I can't get down and talk to the waiter or something. Like Wallace was very interested in regular everyday people and was not about putting up barriers between himself as professor, some literary icon, and regular people and students and stuff. So.
1: So I that's, think that's right. Pretty good. Yeah, and that's a kind of where it's emphasizing a kind of lack of pretension, but a, like a subtle signal that despite your lack of pretension, you contain kind of depths. I think there's probably another kind of guy who has been called that, or a sort of at least a kind of stereotype of a kind of guy, which is maybe just Brooklyn hipster, where it really is. It's without the sort of regular guyness, and it's just a signal of intellectual credibility. And who the writer is who represents that will just change with the with the trends. And I don't know who it would be. Right now, for some period of time, it was Wallace. For another period of time, probably not it, you a man. Know, right. probably. probably not a man. Now, that's right. That's right. Probably, definitely not a white, straight white guy. Now, I guess there's another type, and I feel like it's less of it's less of a literary type, but the kind of archetypal story of the DFW bro, which is the guy who's aggressively pushing the book onto a woman, seems like it intersects in some way to me with just the kind of concept of mansplaining somebody who is genuinely super into Wallace. It's not a pose, but is kind of aggressive and insensitive in his willingness to sort of bore a woman to tears with his knowledge of, you know, given topic of, you know, complexity and technical detail or something like that. Um,
0: Yeah. I mean, I guess, I guess I get what you're saying and like maybe i'm as guilty as anyone because i want to speak about it enthusiastically but you know i yeah. want to say also like what what really interests me is you know not these generalizations but the actual people who i know like who are at these conferences who are going to come next year or they've come over the past 15 years like the real human beings behind it through that i have it's broadened my horizons and it's made me not be one of those guys because i'm able to listen to more types of people i'm able to meet more types of people through this yeah and there's also something that wallace tries to do in his fiction which is about making you feel less alone and i think one of the end results of that is not only from the work but partly how the work brings people together rather than drives these divisions between types of people so that maybe again sounds really corny (laughs) and hokey, which is like what Wallace is about, but like, it really has brought people together in a way that's made me feel less alone in the literary world.
1: I mean, maybe if it's hokey, I think it's justifiably hokey. I I think one of the things that's interesting to me is, or one of the ironies I can imagine is probably your community of Wallace fans is hyper attuned to any, maybe in fact, in some ways less susceptible to some of these tendencies than other communities because of the existence of this public critique, however uninformed you may feel that it's be. You're probably particularly attuned to making people feel welcome and to define what these stereotypes are. As I said, I like making the, I like doing the stereotypes, but I think often the kind of popular ones miss the mark pretty profoundly relative to the community. I I guess... I'm trying to think of how to approach this because this is where I get more inarticulate, is what is it about Wallace to go back to this question that is so compelling to people? And I want to read something from one of, the, one of your assignments for me in advance of this. You gave me sort of two assignments in advance of this episode. I asked you to, but you gave me two. So one was uh, Mary Kay Holland's uh, 2021 essay, the last essay I need to write about David Foster Wallace, and the other one was a chapter from Amy Hungerford's book, Making Literature Now, her 2016 book, and the chapter was called On Not Reading DFW. Of the two, the On Not Reading DFW I think is a much kind of richer, more complicated text than the other one, but I want to read something from uh, Hungerford's chapter that I think speaks to this question of what's compelling about him. So since his death, Wallace has been surrounded with the glow of, quote, St. Dave, proponent of love under hostile postmodern conditions, exhorter of young people to think for themselves. Wallace's 2005 graduation speech delivered at Kenyon College is often cited by fans as the classic summing up of his humane wisdom. The glow of St. Dave casts his hazy effects on the reputation of the man and his fiction, making both harder to see. I should note I excluded something from that passage, which was a kind of nasty parenthetical in which Hungerford says in reference to the Kenyon College speech, I defy readers to find a fresh idea in that speech. Then again, to be fair, fresh ideas may not be the point of graduation speeches. So it was kind of a gratuitous cheap shot. But I don't think she's wrong if you ignore the sort of pejorative subtext of that. I don't think she's wrong in in talking about the glow of St. Dave, nor do I think that the quote I read earlier from Russell Clark about this mix of hyper intellectualism and, and linguistic complexity with regular guidance, that these are something that, that points to the direction of what's compelling about Wallace
0: sure and i guess for me the missing piece there is really the work of art like she's not going to engage with infinite chest she's like it's too long i've better things to do there's more important to read and it is she take away the commencement address and all the nonfiction, and i still say for a lot of people like me he's up there with ulysses and moby dick and proust and i don't really care about how much that makes you feel about his fans, and that's why the work will survive. And it's really hard to have that conversation with someone who hasn't read the book. It's like we could sit around and talk about Moby Dick with people who haven't read Moby Dick, and it's that's a waste of everyone's time. But I do think that his reputation is something that Americans love to do, which is iconoclasts, right? They love to say, yeah. This guy is so big and important let's actually just knock him the hell down, right? Let's knock it down because of, and you could put in 10 other arguments there. I sent you two, but there's a bunch more that people, it's not just saying, oh, I read the book and it's not for me. It's more saying like, I want to make sure that we destroy his reputation. And that that is a kind of a weird academic thing to do, especially for, like I say, a guy who took himself out of the conversation and his, you know, his work is what we focus on in the journal and the conferences. We're not up there doing panels about which kind of table did he throw at Mary Carr. We're not doing those kinds of like gossipy things, when he, especially when he's not alive to defend himself in some ways. But her Hungerford's argument in general, we had a whole keynote from Claire Hayes Brady who has a book called The Unspeakable Failures of David Foster Wallace. She was the longtime editor of our journal. She's still involved in the society and the journal. And she engaged directly with this argument, basically saying the job of a critic is that if you want to be a critic of American literature, you should read Faulkner and Hemingway. And just because if you think their fans suck or their reputation is terrible or they're misogynists, it doesn't excuse you from the obligation of engaging with it or you stay silent. And so Hungerford's sort of somewhere in the middle where she (laughs) wants to have an opinion about it. But what she's read is really minor relatively minor stuff so i just don't know what to make of that other than that she just wants to knock him down a peg because she doesn't like the stuff that you're describing the conversation around him
1: It's interesting. At the broadest level, I agree with you, but like, I thought it was kind of ballsy to make the argument, you know, based on texts that are sort of external to the text, right? That I'm not going to read them and that you shouldn't read them. And I thought it was an interesting and fruitfully provocative argument to make. Of course, I don't agree with it. It's one of those things where you're not even sure if really pushed to it, she would agree with it. Like, it's a little bit of a sort of provocative experiment. I did think, and this is the area where I think I would criticize the work more directly rather than say, hey, she was having some fun with this idea. What is, I think, a mistake she makes in the piece is she takes one of the kind of ways that people advocate for Wallace, which is to say, okay, in brief interviews with hideous men, he's doing these fictional interviews with hideous men where they're exhibiting really horrific misogynistic kind of thoughts, ideas, you know, referring to behaviors, right? Isn't one of them with a rapist who's talking in these horrific ways about raping somebody? And that's a,
0: uh, over maybe a misstatement,
1: but okay, keep going. Okay, but it's not a misstatement to say that he is that some of his work deals with men who have what we would call misogynistic or sexist thoughts or dynamics, right? And, and, but let me get to my point before you get defensive, right? That one of the things that people will say in defense of that is, look, that's an area, that's a theme that he's exploring as a writer, right? Which is a totally defensible case to make for it. But she says specifically, I don't find it's, he explores it, but I don't find any of the insights that he landed upon particularly novel or fresh, And so what I would say to that is that's a kind of profound misunderstanding of what it often looks like for fiction writers in particular to deal with these complicated themes, which is like to understand it as like an insight that you land upon, that you rest from the thing, that is a thing that can happen. But more often, I would say what fiction writers do is they they dramatize things. They dramatize things. They explore with them. You get to live with these things in the particular sort of literary imaginative world that this person creates. And if it's rich enough, then that is – and that depends on the writing, on the style, on the execution – then it becomes a kind of worthwhile endeavor from that perspective. But to reduce it, which frankly she does, to just some sort of crystallized insight, as if literature is philosophy or in literary criticism by other means, is, I think, a mistake. And kind of a fundamental mistake. He just doesn't like Wallace. She doesn't, even what she's read, He doesn't speak to her, right? And you could find some other, you could find a million other writers who speak to her and she could try and translate that into some insight that they landed, that they rested from their work, but really their voice, their subject matter, their stories, they speak to her. Wallace just didn't speak to her and she doesn't deal with the fact that he profoundly speaks to people.
0: Right, and also a lot of those stories in that book in particular are he's not writing that book just because we all love reading about misogynistic and men being shitty to women it's not written as entertainment it's not written as something like bukowski right where it's hey the lovable old misogynist pervert guy it's written to be extremely critical of these men and actually there are some i would argue pretty complicated portraits of women in that book and the last story in there is an example, sometimes called the Granola Cruncher story. This is a story of a woman who does get raped. She's almost murdered, but she's able to not get murdered by making this soul connection with her killer, right? Her adventure killer. but I mean, He doesn't kill her because it's almost like this mystical process that she has this extreme focus. And Zadie Smith, in her book Changing My Mind, wrote a whole essay going in close reading of that story and... I would say, in order to actually get the meaning out of those stories, that's what you have to do, and that's a lot harder to reduce down to these pithy talking points. If you actually want to engage with that story, like I think it is, a, you could have a feminist reading of it. You could have a religious reading of sure. it, and like a lot of those shitty men are telling a story in service of something a little bit deeper, and th- that's where literary scholars—that's a cabinet to them right? Like you put that out there to say, yes, there's a very rich text and there's a lot going on influence wise and at the sentence level and at the vocabulary level. And also what Wallace would call like the art's heart's purpose. And what is the purpose of doing that? Or even in infinite jest and writing a thousand page novel, like I say, I think a lot of people have read that stuff and determined that the purpose of it was something about connection and humanity and, Other people have read it and said, you know what, not for me. And in fact, I think it's evil. It's their point of view. But
1: one thing you said is like he's not telling stories about or doing interviews with hideous men in order to entertain us. And I was going to disagree with that. I do think entertainment is, is in the mix. I don't think that I don't think that counters any of the larger points you make. But in Hungerford's essay, she taught I think she quotes some letter that that Wallace writes in which he says that his goal as a writer is to it's like he wants to fuck him like his audience Like, the goal is entertaining. I mean, I found Brief Interviews with Ideas Men an entertaining book. It was a lot of other things. Look, part of lots of all sorts of art. Why do we go see horrific horror movies or something like that? We're taking some of the energy that we're absorbing from that, that we're seeking out, is pleasure in the, at least the sort of by proxy committal of horrible, brutal acts. And I don't think we need to exempt Wallace from participating in that dynamic to think that what he's doing is worthwhile and not meaningfully deflated, you know, with some kind of simplistic criticism about the, I don't know, the morals of those people he's characterizing. I mean, we're in it, we're entertained, right? Right?
0: Yeah, it may be a better word. It's just gratuitous. I didn't think it was gratuitous. And, you know, sure, entertaining in that you want to turn the page and keep reading, but not gratuitous in a way that he's trying to excite you, or there's something perverse about
1: it. But. The other thing that we had both already read before this, so it didn't need to be assigned to me, was the Lauren Euler's essay, recent essay in Harper's. And now I'm gonna forget the title of it. the, the uh,
0: title is I Really Didn't Wanna Go, I think.
1: I really didn't want to go. So Lauren Euler is a young, relatively hip critic who had a well reviewed and and often reviewed novel, um, fake I think it was called Fake Accounts last year maybe. Um, And one of the things, so she wrote this essay, which by and large I liked, um, but she writes explicitly about anybody who, who endeavors to write a cruise essay. And not only did she write a cruise essay, but she wrote a cruise essay in Harper's, which is the magazine for which Wallace wrote his famous cruise essay. But she actually took a cruise on, I think, the exact same cruise line that his cruise was on. And I always remember the name of the, his essay as it was republished in a collection as a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again. I think it had, a, I think it was Shipping Out or something, something less less compelling is the title. And so, so so she talks about, I mean, a lot of her essay is about, you know, it's a goop cruise. So, so it's Gwyneth Paltrow's brand. And there, a lot of it is about that. But she talks very early on and very overtly about the fact that you can't write a cruise essay in Harper's of all places without the shadow of David Foster Wallace kind of looming over you, and I actually wrote something criticizing how she dealt with that, and it's an interesting complicated story. Let's see, I'm going to read from one of her, from her sort of initial, one of her long quotes. So she writes, During the years-long squabble over which of us lady writers would become the next Joan Didion, no one had tried to claim the title of David Foster Wallace for girls. His reputation as both a misogynist and an author beloved by misogynists meant it was just sitting right there this whole time. Waiting for anyone with grammatical flexibility and the courage to try. A reread confirmed my suspicions. It's not that good, that italicized for emphasis, but it is fatedly about a cruise on the same cruise line. All I'd have to do was avoid footnotes, which would be too obvious, and getting sensitive about the evils of advertising, a moment that is long past. The point, remember, is not to imitate DFW, but to occupy his place in a female way. A supposedly moisturizing thing you'll never do again, suggested a friend, referring to the the goop brand of skin products. A supposedly fun egg I'll never put in my vagina again, which is a kind of deeper cut goop joke, proposed another. A supposedly fun thing I'll never do again because I'm dead, boyfriend one supplied. I would not be putting any jade eggs in my vagina, both because of my Didion-esque self-respect and because uh, da, 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 da. A- anyway, any- anyway, I'm getting paid about 50% more than DFW does. DFW was even adjusting for inflation, which is a win for us girls. So my criticism of Oiler was A, Waller's, Wallace's essay was that good and B, she was obviously denying the profound influence that Wallace had on her minimizing it. The complexity of that is that She subsequently went on to do an interview with the Washington Post talking about this essay. And that's testament, by the way, to the power of Wallace's aura that not only does she write an essay in which she references it, but then the Washington Post wants to run an interview with her about the essay she wrote, which is substantially about her relationship to the Wallace essay. So it's a second order thing um, in which she and in that interview, she admits to being profoundly influenced by David Foster Wallace and says, I love Wallace. So anyway, I don't know. What did you make of that essay, Matt?
0: I agree that she's a good writer, I think she's very smart, and in a lot of ways I think that this essay is indicative of like where we are in the culture right now, and that this probably is what David Foster Wallace for girls it looks like, if that's what she's aiming for. And I think that's an interesting question we can talk about, too, because I think that's a little different question than who is the female David Foster Wallace, which is something that we've been discussing online for 20 years. And it, you, it, it's a stupid question, because who would you say who is the female James Joyce or Hemingway right. or Faulkner? or Who's the male Toni Morrison? It's stupid. It's, we could blather on about that. But the, she says in there, too, like saying negative things was encouraged. So I think generally she does have this sort of air of detached superiority. Do you know this Onion article from like 2002 where this guy's, I'll try anything with a detached air of superiority. You might not think, even though I have a PhD, I would even enjoy bowling, but I'll put on this funky little shirt and try to enjoy myself amongst the locals. And with Wallace, the state fair piece, I'm sure you've read that as well, where he went to the state fair, that came out first and it employs this sort of roving eye technique where he's looking outward at the state fair or he's looking outward at the cruise and documenting everything he sees in really precise detail, extreme focusing on where there's cracks in the facade. And her essay is much more about punching that goop, which is like a tired old meme and looking inward at her polyamory and not really interested in a lot of the same things Wallace was trying to do. So I feel like it is a very different thing and when you were reading it, I was like, it's actually a little more mean-spirited than I'd hoped. <laughs> and, you know, that shit about because I'm dead. You know, I, I've met Wallace's parents and his sister and, like, just to make just casual jokes about, like, "haha, because I'm dead. I can't. It's not a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again. It's because I'm dead. Like, uh, it's just really poor taste to me. So I, it wasn't for me. Uh, I did read yeah. the thing, and I will continue to follow Lauren Euler's career. I actually think we have similar tastes in reading. Um, but Wallace was about this sincerity and not about being ironic and cooler than thou and this hipster, what I would associate was like, can't really be too into anything because then you can be criticized. This fear she has of being criticized and it's something deep in our culture, man.
1: I was going to go, when you said, I think this is indicative of where we are as a culture, a, a, a different... though I don't disagree with anything you said, a different kind of constellation of things came into my mind, which is it's interesting where we are in our culture vis-a-vis David Foster Wallace, which I think also intersects with where we are vis-a-vis Me Too and where we are with regard to wokeness and where we are with regard to this broader question of whether the sort of personal failings of some artist should impact or not our work. So interesting that They published, they being Harpers, published an essay in 2023, I think it was this year, just a few months ago, that was so clearly in some respects an homage to Wallace. I'm not sure that they would have done that a few years ago at the height of Me Too. So that's interesting and indicates a shift from where we were. Interesting that they, the person who writes at Lauren Euler is somebody who, in the Washington Post, so again, so not in the article itself, but in a high-profile publication says, and I'm quoting here from this interview in the Post, I love him. My editor was trying to get me to make a direct statement that I loved him, and I resisted saying too much directly. I think it's really clear, if you read my other writing as well, that he's hugely influential. So there is an acknowledgment, and in some respects an explicit acknowledgment, of how much Wallace means to people and to this writer in particular, but then also there's all these qualifications in the piece itself. How his reputation as both a misogynist and an author beloved by misogynists. So there's this sort of hedging, and I think all of those things are actually a really interesting window into where into where we are as a culture, which is actually the pendulum has started started shifting somewhat back towards a desire to separate out the artist from his art and to acknowledge it but there's still these sort of like required hedgings and qualifications
0: right in a way it is evidence that he does matter and that you know no one would care about some random guy who wrote an essay in harper's who was an unknown person there was a tumblr that was big a few years ago your fave is problematic right and they had a long list of people like there's probably a hundred people on there And it's people documenting all the transphobic jokes Stephen Colbert has told and, you know, all the stuff Lady Gaga has done, all the stuff that, you know, Madonna and Sean Penn. And it's very casual to just almost turn someone into a punchline. And so in a way, I was actually happy to see that she had engaged with Wallace a little more than just one off line. The fact that she even put more than one one sentence about him in there, I think shows that she has to engage with him because he is not just a punchline. But the simplicity of calling someone uh, a misogynist, I think that's really, that's tough to do. And when she says, like I say, saying negative things about him and the cruise was encouraged from her editor, that's just too easy of putting labels on someone and then not having to do the work and saying, I'm in a popular magazine, I'm just going to go write about goop now. And then throwing, I don't know, throwing those labels out i think it's really tough
1: no i, I do want to yeah i do want to say and i'm not sure you would disagree with this like i think it's totally fair game to talk about wallace's biography and things he said and did that whether you want to call him a misogynist or not were things that were sexist or misogynist or exploitative i mean i don't know the Hungerford essay and i'm trying to remember if this is a direct quote or somebody is kind of a secondhand quote Talk, you know, says he used the phrase audience pussy to describe, you know, hooking up with people who showed up at these readings that he did. And essentially having groupies, he talks about sleeping with students. He talks in, I think, a probably not atypical way for sort of a guy of his generation. He's not Norman Mailer. He's of a later generation. They had more awareness of feminism. I'm not excusing it. I'm just saying he talked in ways that I think it's pretty fair to characterize as sexist. Or, or maybe misogynist, whatever. I don't think he's exempt from that. Like, the fact of the matter is, like, this whole podcast episode is in some respects about the phenomenon around him, and I don't think we can talk about the phenomenon around him without talking about what kind of person he was. He's not the first, nor will he be the last great or good writer to personally have some pretty severe failings, nor is he the la- the first nor the last person who suffered from pretty severe kind of substance use, substance addictions to have committed some pretty grievous wrongs against the people in their sure. lives like there are a lot of people in this world maybe a majority of them where the story of their life is substantially a story of like having trauma committed upon them and committing sort of traumatic acts against other people and he was one of those people let's not sure. pretend otherwise sure.
0: no 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 and I, I, all that stuff is pretty well documented and you know i guess two things i would say about that you know, and again, we've never shied away from talking about it or like trying to be, I can't defend him. Why would I like, I'm not defensive of him, but, um, two things. One is especially the stuff around Mary Carr. Uh, -hmm. she writes about it in her book lit as well, which came out, I think in 2012, 2013. And it's in the DT max biography of Wallace. Um, you know, stuff that he did, tried to push her out of a moving car. Like there's some really bad stuff in there. Um, But in her book, she does say that he uh, had apologized and made amends with her and left on good terms. And I guess like in some ways, if someone does something really shitty, you look at how they apologize as well. And, you know, that does matter to me. Like if someone hurts my feelings and says, well, fuck you, you were wrong. I don't have anything to apologize for. That's different than saying, no, privately, I want to make amends. And again, all this was private before he died. We didn't know any of this until after he died. Um, so the, the, the fact that he did apologize for a lot of the stuff in private, in letters, even for some of his comments, which, you know, he had actually said something rude to me and
1: wrote me a letter of apology. Yeah. Tell so, me that. I was trying to remember that story. Uh, tell me that story. You had it's so not,
0: Yeah. It's not super interesting. I was trying to get him some questions from a translator. Again, this is before he did email and we kind of had some back and forth and he was, he was not very, happy about wanting to do these questions and he took it out on me but he was he was just rude to me a little bit and he felt really bad and wrote me a letter of apology and like I say how many other people have been rude to me never wrote me a letter of apology <laughs> that matters the second thing I would say is after that stuff has been documented you know we were talking about the separation between someone's work and art and life um, in a way it has been integrated into his reputation by now and that, again, everyone is different. Every character is different. But if you go on that, like, your fave is problematic Tumblr and look at the list of things that all of these bad boys have done, and yet they have the reputation for being, like, a bad boy, a lot of that is just the society that wants to cancel everyone has also been willing to accept some people back in on a case-by-case basis. And I think in way... Wallace is in that process or has been in that process and his reputation for some is like, they just hate him. Right. And for others, they're saying like me, I'm aware of it. I don't excuse it. I don't apologize for what he did, but it, for me, it doesn't discount what he achieved in his work.
1: Yeah, and I should be clear about my kind of priors. Part of why I jump so quickly to the sort of, let's talk about his biography or the DFW bros or all of this stuff is like, I'm just kind of an old school liberal, I think, in the sense of like, the art is the art and the artist is the artist. And it's not quite that never, never shall the twain meet. But it's like, I care almost next to nothing about you know, the personal life and foibles of David Foster Wallace. Like, mostly I care about, I care about it a lot for this podcast, but as a reader, and his influence on me has been in his nonfiction stuff, like, mostly what I care about is just the work and and it's not that i can totally wall off that stuff from my sense of who he is as a writer but that but that, that that sort of the way in which it impinges on it is pretty minimal and diminishes as i get back into the writing itself so when euler said i went back and read the essay it's not that good well then i had to go back and read the essay and to confirm for myself that actually it is that good right, right. and You know, his collections, what are his collections? Like his collection of supposedly fun thing I'll never do again. His collection, Consider the Lobster. I think there were one or two others. I mean, those are, those are landmark books for me. They're landmark books for like the entire field of sort of, you know, literary nonfiction and magazine writing. He was an extraordinarily good and powerful writer. And I just, I don't care that much that maybe he was an asshole. Maybe he was a misogynist. You know, I mean, there is a threshold beyond which somebody can go personally that maybe I can't overlook it. Right. Like, I don't think I can I'm going to like be watching a lot of episodes of the Cosby show or something like that. Or if Harvey Weinstein had his own like sitcom in which he starred, I probably would not be watching the Weinstein show, you know. But while it's convenient, it's
0: convenient if you didn't like Louis C.K., it's convenient to say, oh, I I also don't like him as a person. So that's convenient for you. Uh, let's say you and I went to an art museum together and instead of talking about the the work on the walls, all we said is like, Oh, here's a Warhol. Well, you know, he said like these uh, really transphobic things. And he was really mean to his partner. And here's a Basquiat, you know, he was a really drunk and he was a drug abuser. If that's all you have to talk about, like you have a limited amount of time on this earth. And I like you, I would rather talk about the, the themes, the plot, the, the work of well, like me, the I like
1: I like to talk about the discourse around it, but I know what you mean, right? Like, yeah, I like to talk about the discourse around it because I find that kind of interesting in its own right. But I think it's mostly separable from me, from the question of not just was he a good writer, an exceptional writer, which he was, but also was he somebody we should read, and the we being people who are interested in literature and I think should we assign this if we were teaching a class in contemporary American fiction or contemporary American nonfiction or magazine writing and I mean I just think the answer has to be yes and I don't think that means like I can imagine a scenario on the margins where somebody is like they're the last one who made it onto your syllabus or something like that like they're pretty good but they're not and you're just like and but then it turns out they had all these yucky all this like bad stuff in their personal life and these ways that they hurt people I might be like yeah let's just keep them off or something like that you know the problem with Wallace or the lack of a problem is he's not at the margins of your syllabus he's at the center of your syllabus and you really can't pretend or otherwise nor do I think should you pretend otherwise because I don't think there's anything to be gained by it I just don't know what we gain from excluding him because I don't buy that particular calculation that we're actually advancing the cause of justice by excluding great artists because of failings in their personal I just don't actually buy the equation apart from my sort of principles but but All that said, I think it's important to recognize and not diminish the gravity of what he did or may have done, particularly on a podcast where we're talking about how he exists in ways that are external to the work itself. And I wonder if you've had stuff in your society from women in particular who really love Wallace and really appreciate him, but are sort of troubled in their reading of him by the knowledge that has come out. Some sure. Sense. That's another scenario I can imagine. I think it's easy enough for me to say it doesn't bother me. I'm not the kind of person, I haven't been victim of various kinds of misogyny or sexism in those sort of direct ways. But for somebody sure. who has...
0: And actually, I should send you my friend Grace's dissertation. She wrote a whole dissertation on this after you know, Me Too and about how the fan community has even reacted to this. So there, there's been a lot of work around it, and we have people who were... Disillusioned, Mary Holland being one of those, and that was a big part of her just getting tired of being asked about it when she really couldn't stomach it anymore. Yeah, and so I think some of the other the women who I'm really close with, who help run our society, would be definitely pointing out like we're two straight white men sitting discussing David Foster Wallace. No surprise, we're defensive of him. But we, like I say, we welcome the criticism. We've published a lot of absolute criticism that integrates race and gender and class in in those criticisms and i we welcome more it's like we couldn't avoid that if we wanted to um,
1: and i would say it's also legitimate and i'm not the person to make this case it's also legitimate to rely on biographical material to make what is a fundamentally literary case let's say about ways in which a writer didn't didn't fully represent certain a certain type of person like there's the Vivian Gornick has this great book, I think it's called the End of the Novel of Love or something like that, and a lot of it is about the kind of giants of sort of American fiction of the mid century, I think Mailer and Roth, and maybe before that some of the earlier ones, Hemingway and Faulkner, and the ways in which they were, none of them were quite capable of representing a woman as like a totally actual human being, and I am not the literary critic. I'm not enough of a literary critic to to evaluate whether she's right about that, but I certainly think that's a legitimate case to make. So I can imagine an argument about Wallace's representation of women in his fiction that drew on some of the biographical material to say look, this is a guy who was great at some things. This was a thing he was not so great. And what I should say about Gornick's book is she has a, she was a reader. She was a kind of devoted reader of many of the people who she criticized. So she's saying this is an area where they, there was a sort of consistent failure on the part of of sort of male fiction writers of the 20th century. Essentially, let's hope that, that we can do better going forward, but it was not a cancellation of those men. It was just a saying, this was not where their strength was. And it was a kind of symptomatic of broader sort of cultural literary phenomena.
0: Well, and I did, you know, work as assistant researcher on his biography for T- DT Max. And oh, I, I don't
1: know if I knew that. I, okay,
0: I, I'm pretty well versed in all the details of his biography. And what gets sort of cherry picked out of there is that these few bad anecdotes that we're talking about and what people don't talk about is his widow. They don't talk about his sister. They don't talk about his long-term girlfriend before that. It's just much easier to focus on these two or three really bad things that he did. And so it... Like any person, it's a complicated picture and that, you know, you could talk to someone who was in a relationship for 10 years with him and they might say, oh, we fought, we had disagreements, he never laid a hand on me to do anything and he was not a misogynist. Like those that person's point of view is not taken into account because it doesn't fit into this little neat narrative either. And you would have to really read that biography and engage with it sort of chronologically in the way that his fiction evolves too. this yep. is someone who was in the AA, someone who, you know, was in recovery, someone who ultimately committed suicide. And so I, I don't know that focusing on a couple of the worst days of their life is a full picture of them. And we haven't seen a lot of discussions about like his relationship with his mother in the media or his mm-hmm. relationship with fiance that he had before Mary Carr. Th- those people are still alive, too, and they just don't fe- factor into the public discourse as much.
1: Do you think, this is a different kind of question, like, do you think the articles that are coming in, you know, for submission to the journal and the books that are coming out, the monographs and the, the sort of non-academic ones and the movie, like, is his, moving forward, is his liter- literary reputation primarily going to hang on infinite jest, or is it more going to be the nonfiction or the short fiction, or I guess there's this sort of posthumous, I mean, it's a posthumous book. I don't know exactly how you guys think of it. The Pale King, which was partially written by him and then adapted by someone, cleaned up and adapted by someone else. Is Infinite Jest going to perpetually be, let's just grant the argument that he will be read in 50 years. Is is Infinite Jest going to be the thing that's read or is it going to be other stuff?
0: Short answer, yes, it's infinite jest. And it's like a big surprise that the James Joyce Society gets a lot of articles about Ulysses and that the Melville Society gets a lot of papers on Moby Dick. Those guys all wrote a bunch of other stuff. But no, that, that is the sun in which all the other scholarship orbits. Um, that's the short
1: answer. Uh, welcome back. I, I in between when we recorded the first installment of this this podcast, and um, I had it all edited and ready to go. Uh, there arose an event that felt like it had to be contended with uh, an event in the in the world of uh, David Foster Wallace, Iana, I guess maybe one might say, and. Also, I realized there was some things that I wanted to ask you about that I hadn't gotten a chance to ask you about prior, and I think I have a nice segue in my head about how to get between the event and those other questions. So the event is um, that in the pages of the London Review of Books, the writer Patricia Lockwood published a very long sort of review essay that was connected to, and you can correct me if I get any of these details wrong, the publication of Something to Do with Paying Attention, which is a Wallace novella that was already published as part of The Pale King, which was his last posthumous novel. Is that right, Matt? Did I get that right in terms of what Something to Do with Paying Attention is? That's right. And the
0: um, novella published by McNally Editions actually came out um, over a year ago in 2022. Oh, okay. so, oh but in lovely sort of-
1: London Review of Books, New York Review of Books fashion, which I appreciate. They publish, they deal with things on their own time. And in truth, the essay by Lockwood is really more of just her meditation broadly on Wallace. And I think something to do with paying attention is a little bit of a pretext. It occupies more space than it would if it weren't the most recent publication, but it's. But it's a reason for her to wax eloquent on Wallace. And so this was the sort of essay du jour for a little while, for more than a jour in the world of letters. I guess first thing I'd ask you, Matt, what did you make of it? How did you understand it? So
0: when I saw this essay come out, I was dreading it a little bit just because, like, I don't keep up with Patricia Lockwood that much and don't read her regularly and know much about her all i thought is like this could be bad in some ways like this is going to be some kind of lengthy trashing of wallace and when i read it i don't think it is that but i also feel like i'm not the intended audience for the piece and it's definitely all over the place you described it as her sort of meditation on wallace and that that does sort of raise the question of why now (laughs) the pale king she's dealing with came out in 2011 that's 12 years ago and she talks about infinite jest in a way that i feel like she actually wants to compliment this little excerpt from the pale king but in order to do that she has to stomp on top of some other common cliches about Infinite Jest to get there. So that was very curious for me of, oh, I thought we were this was all settled matter in some way. And then, you know, it's one of those things you would dread if Patricia Lockwood came out with a piece about you 10 years from now. You'd be like, oh, Jesus, like I'm going to rehash this all again, you know? And I feel a little bit the same way if like someone I know gets quote tweeted by Joyce Carol Oates. Mm -hmm. of Like, oh, this can't be good. Like, even if it's good, it's bad.
1: I, I was going to say, and I feel like we we both have evaded up to this point the the the, uh, the need to sort of summarize what it is. And I think there's a reason for that, but I'm going to try and do it to the best of my ability, and then you can correct me in nuance what is it is that she actually said. So it's an 8,000-word piece. It spends a lot of time with Infinite Jest. It spends some time with brief interviews with hideous men. Uh, it spends a little bit of time in a very broad sense with kind of the impact of his nonfiction and what, what it's character was, and then it spends some time with the new, It's not quite new, but with something to do with paying attention to the novella, I would say if I had to try and summarize it for somebody, I would say it is Lockwood's effort as a writer herself of great ambition to deal with somebody who I think has been important to her, or at least has been an important, is an important enough figure in the sort of larger literary pantheon that she feels like she needs to deal with with Wallace. Not everybody is of such ambition that they need to deal with the people, with the big players in their realm. I'm not sure that I'm of that of that ambition, but I think she is. I guess the other thing, as I would say, if I had to characterize her assessment of Wallace, as you said, 10 years after Pale King, however many, 15 or so years after his suicide, how I would characterize her assessment of Wallace is infinite jest a lot of brilliant stuff in it, but ultimately, in some sense, a kind of highly imperfect book um, that has been overpraised. She's not big on brief interviews for hideous men. She's damning with faint praise, his nonfiction, And then, as you said, I think that she actually has some nice things to say about the novella, Isolated from the Pale King, maybe as an example of Wallace at his best. And then I would add on top of that, because that summary to this point suggests that she doesn't actually think that much of Wallace. I guess I would layer on top of that some larger sense that she, that's a recognition of his extraordinary genius level talent and his capacity at his best to do extraordinary things that almost no one else can do. But I think an assessment that he ultimately never fully realized it or something like that. So that doesn't really totally give you a flavor of what she wrote, but that's my kind of brief kind of summary of her assessment of Wallace. And I guess to your question of why now, I think that's a less mysterious question to me than you're framing it. Why now? Because Wallace still looms immensely large in the literary landscape. And so the people who loom that large just have to be dealt with and repeatedly have to be dealt with by other writers who want to live in the world of letters and make their own mark and so on.
0: Yeah. And to your point, the the Lauren Euler cruise ship essay comes up in her piece as well. And yeah. so I wondered if this was something she had been probably working on for a while. And then Like us, like she had to pivot whenever Lauren Euler came out with her piece as well. And I will say there's some good and bad in the essay for me that some of the good things I would point out was I think she deals really interestingly with the idea of memory here. I think she actually gets some interesting points out of that. And I do think she's also trying to do some revisionist history on Infinite Jest. The way that Lauren Euler, we said, went back and read the cruise yeah. ship piece and said, it wasn't that good. She's saying like, Infinite Jest isn't that good. And I think that's a much harder case to make for me. Yeah. And to me, that's like saying, well, I went back and read Ulysses and it wasn't that good. Or I read yeah. Moby Dick. It, it was just OK. It, you know, it had, Here's the flaws in it. It's like, well, that's she's ignoring a ton of other parts of the book that why people love it like she doesn't even really deal with why people love infinite jest Um, she's just saying for her so I wanted to ask you too uh, this essay jumps around the point of view is all over the place did you notice this like where she says like we did this and we think this and we do that and then she starts out by saying you would notice and you would and then she's I'm not doing like it's first second and third person throughout this point of view, which I don't know how intentional that was.
1: Yeah, I mean, I will cop to something, which is, this is a piece of writing that is kind of deliberately, overtly, I don't know if experimental is the right word to put it, because that's that's a vague fuzzy term. But it's not trying to be, it's not trying to be straightforward and linear in the way that an essay like this would typically be. And when faced with something like that, ...that doesn't go down as smooth as I'm accustomed to things going down. You know, I have a decision to make. There's a fork in the road. Down one direction, you read it incredibly closely and spend the time with it. You need to actually try and understand what the writer is doing and trying to do... ...if you're capable of that, which not all of us are, and I include myself in the Not Always... ...or you just kind of glide through it and sort of skim the surface... And I just skimmed the surface because I reserve that. I reserve that level of kind of deep attention. This isn't a knock on Lockwood. I reserve that kind of level of deep attention for things that I have probably external reason to believe are worth it. Like they're assigned in a class or they exist in the canon in a way where I can't trust my own judgment. That it's not just a hot mess, which is what my instinct says. There's a lot of good writing in this piece, but it's a hot mess. And the alternative version is actually it's this brilliantly achieved sort of nonlinear effort that if only you know, I were smarter or I were willing to devote the time to it, I would be able to recognize. It's possible that's true. I just don't have the external evidence to persuade me to dedicate the time to it to come to a much firmer conclusion about whether it's a hot mess or it's like just like this brilliant experimental piece of nonfiction writing. So I did not notice specifically, but I noticed that it jumps all over the place, and there's lots of sentences that don't obviously make sense following from the preceding sentence, and there's lots of things that aren't explained that could be explained. I mean, you and I, before we started recording, we're talking about the title of the essay, Where Be Your Jibes Now?, which I guess is an infinite jest reference by way of Hamlet, right? Right. Is that right? Right.
0: Yeah, it's that's a speech, you know, the alas, poor York, I knew him, Horatio, fellow of infinite jest, most excellent fancy, blah, blah, blah. Where be your jibes now, your gambles, your songs, your flashes of merriment. But so it's, it's an pretty, infinite, it's a
1: Hamlet slash infinite jest reference that she doesn't fully explain, and I did not. Right. I figured, okay, there's something going on there. There's some reference I'm not getting, but Matt will surely get it. <laughs> and, you know, I I guess... And I want to leave a question mark at the end of this, even as what I'm about to say will sound like a relatively confident assertion, which is, I do think it's kind of a hot mess, the essay. Um, I think having been in the position of trying to write about really big figures before myself, it is a hard endeavor. And I've never tried to write about somebody in a sort of authoritative way who casts as long a shadow as David Foster Wallace. We talked about a little little bit, bit about this with the Euler's piece, like, it's just a tough thing to pull off. There's different stances you can adopt. One is just not trying to, right? Writing about it, but sort of narrowing the angle of your lens. So you're not trying to take on David Foster Wallace, the writer. You're just trying to take on this specific piece of him. Another, which is harder, but probably easier than what Lockwood trying to do, which is just a kind of takedown piece. So you reduce somebody to much, much smaller than really, in truth, they are and then just go then just kind of decimate that sort of miniature version of them and then there's what she's trying to do which is write in an authoritative way with the world of letters looking on about this big figure and have mastery over it and i think as most of us do she failed at the task but did some interesting things in the process
0: yeah i think that's fair and one thing i didn't know until this came out was how many people truly Love and admire, like, she has a huge, really devoted fan base. And for a lot of readers, she can do no wrong. I'm not saying to criticize it because I'm approaching it a little bit differently than a lot of other people, but sort of like you. She's one of those people who has a sort of protected status in a way. Of, you yeah. can't criticize Patricia Lockwood, and I didn't realize that going in, reading this thing. But to me, she was more of like a humorist, and uh-huh. so her jokes that are in here really fell flat for me. Like I didn't really find any of them that funny, and she makes some what? comment too about the Tony we- Tony Ware section of the Pale King. Sounding like uh Cormac McCarthy who broke his hymen on a horseback. On a horseback. <laughs> and I and I was just like what part No, it was of that a cheap change?
1: joke. I'm I'm laughing. It was a cheap joke. It wasn't a great joke.
0: Y- yeah, and then but, but I mean it right, just doesn't even make right, sense because me. like what about that actually even sounds like Cormac McCarthy? Like it, there's other parts of the book that do, but it was like for the joke to work, you need to pick on one of the times where Wallace actually does write a female character from a strong point of view. And I I was like that that was trying to be in service of some offhanded joke, but it really uh, gloss, it glossed over something that I think was a really important part of that book, which was the Tony Ware. is just
1: like, oh, well, she's a punchline
0: in this review.
1: So you will naturally want to take that to sort of some deep question about Wallace. I want to take it <laughs> to what you first said, which is I'm totally ignorant of the kind of meta discourse around Patricia Lockwood. So what I, I'm assuming from what you said that after this review came out, some people criticized it, and then Lockwood defenders leapt to her defense. Can you characterize briefly what sort of happened in the aftermath of sure. this so, I I mean, thing coming I, out.
0: I watched, you know, it, it get posted everywhere on social media and to see what the response was and some of people's response on our Wallace L listserv as well. It was posted there. We had a lengthy discussion about it and there is a number of people, maybe even the majority of people who just absolutely love Patricia Lockwood. And yeah. we actually just really excited. Their quick take on it, skimming it like you did in five minutes, where was like, "Oh, this is awesome." Patricia Lockwood wrote about Wallace. This is great, and that was, that was kind of like, the consensus from other people. And there was one guy on Twitter who posted something really awful about. Patricia Lockwood in the piece, and just he got brutally savaged, as yeah. you could imagine. I just one frustrating part about the essay for me too, is the as I mentioned earlier in this conversation with you, like I've just gotten back from this academic conference about David Foster Wallace and have heard all these great, like in-depth academic pieces on, let's say, Wallace and heteronormativity. And for her to bring it up is like an offhanded punchline. So again, heteronormativity and infinite jest. You could write a whole academic paper about it. Many people have. And here, why is she bringing that up in the context of this Pale King review? And it's like, well, it's in service of punching at it, but she misses. So for me, that's like, it's a frustrating thing to not go into depth. If you're going to bring up heteronormativity in Wallace's work or trans representation, one, that's an in-depth topic, not just one paragraph. And here it's like, that's just... What you said about like a hot mess, that's one paragraph of a thing here where I'm like, it's frustrating to see it used that way when I've just heard this other long in-depth paper on the same topic that's not one paragraph
1: let me say a few things. Like, you should be less frustrated than you are because (laughs) the critique that you just waged is precisely why it's a hot mess and why it is so hard to write about these people. And I don't mean this in a way that's sort of attacking you. I'm just saying it's hard to write about somebody like David Foster Wallace, knowing in the back of your head, there are a great number of people out there who have an immense amount of knowledge about him, who have written from him, you know, from many different angles and in order in some sense to have total mastery and address all of those concerns and integrate all those nuances you would have had to do essentially what you've done over the last 25 years which is just be focused on Wallace right and and of course there is a way that you can somehow manage to write about him in an authoritative way without having that utter mastery of the knowledge but it's incredibly hard and it's incredibly daunting, which is not a defense of her failure of execution, if in fact there was, but it's just to the point of why it is so hard to do. The other thing I wanted to say is there's a line in her essay that points to something we talked about in the previous installment. So she says, for a long time, Infinite Jest was one of those novels where any time you said anything about it, a little guy would pop up on the sidelines, waving his arms and yelling, that's the point! The original title was a failed entertainment! That's the point! Now, of course, she's looking at you, Matt, while she says that, but it's looking at the sort of DFW bro thing, but it's also funny. I don't think it's quite ironic, but it's funny just because... That, that what you're saying, and I'm sure this is true, which is she has her own legion of little, of little people, <laughs> of little guys and girls and probably, excuse, female, who will pop up if you say anything critical about her and yell whatever their version of, that's the point, or maybe just you're an asshole misogynist or something like that. But she also is one of these writers who generates some kind of aura around her that attracts a dedication that is more than just, I like your writing. This is gonna sound a little too neat, but it it feels like it doesn't surprise me that that's the case about her having read this piece, and I'm not sure if I've read anything else of hers, but there is a kind of insidery voice to it. There's a lot of like jokes and little turns that feel like somebody's gonna get them. It's not me, but it's like a very specific thing maybe you can do or you are more inclined to do when you know you have an audience of people who are super attentive readers of yours, or alternatively, maybe it's that kind of writing that generates an audience of reader who are super attentive readers. But before you interject, I want to switch to the other topic. You gave me a great segue, which is I didn't actually ask you nearly as much as I wanted to about what goes on in the David Foster Wallace lists, Listserv. And you said you guys spent some time on the Listserv talking about this essay and probably issues associated with, with it, which I assumed was the case. What does that look like without breaking yeah. any confidences? Because it's a semi-confidential world. Yeah, you can be anonymous
0: on it. It was the first place i ever talked to other people about david foster wallace online uh, was that i had discovered this listserv and th- this was you know maybe i mentioned this before too like this was before the days of google right this was yeah, before right. you could find anyone and it's text based right and it unlike yeah. instagram or even twitter at this point really it's you could be anonymous on it and yeah. you could find really smart people and When Twitter came out, when a lot of people migrated to social media to have these kinds of discussions, some of the discussion levels at the listserv dropped off. Like, I think we had a period around the year 2000, 2001, where there were hundreds of messages a day. And it was part of our wow uh, it was part of our some people would get the digest and we consider those people to be amateurs you know lightweights you just get one <laughs> one email with the digest a day it's like no you got to get the full like cocaine stream that's like there's no comparison like yeah your 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 life is revolving around this because it's uh, that was where we went to discuss everything not just David Foster Wallace but the listserv never went away so we yeah. didn't shut it down you know and after he died we saw a big Tic, uptick in people who wanted to gather together and mourn and this was a safe place because you, you knew those people there were like you and in mourning and I would say in the past 15 years the traffic has definitely been less so, so what, what's the, the
1: average number of you know how many posts a day do you get how many emails a day do you? no
0: get? no it varies I mean it, it'll go a month and we'll maybe only get 20 messages and then yeah. if so, if something like this happens where we have a conference or we have Patricia Lockwood essay comes out or the cruise ship piece, there will be some uptick in discussion. Um, but it, it is something that
1: uh, – You mean so you get 20 or 30 in a day for a few days or something rather than – Right, and then nothing for like – And then nothing for yeah, – Yeah. Yep.
0: Yeah. So again, he's not publishing any new books. Despite this being an excerpt from the Pale King, he's not really publishing any new books or new essays. So a lot of it is very meta or removed, but it is a very social thing, too. If you sort of trust this community of people who are like minded in some ways, right, that you have the same reading tastes as a lot of it was always like discussing what, what should you read?
1: As an aside, we may come to see in retrospect that Elon Musk's greatest contribution to humanity was neither Tesla nor SpaceX, but buying and destroying Twitter. Twitter. Um, (laughs) Send us back to email. Send us back to email and listservs. So, I mean, but can you characterize what were the emails back and forth about the Patricia Lockwood piece?
0: So, yeah, I was very surprised, as I said, that so many people really loved it. And I think that it's wrong to characterize it as a takedown. Like, I don't think it was a takedown. And there was some praise for her that I learned about. Like, I didn't know she had a famous cat named uh, yet who is like the subject of some memes from like 10 years ago. And some people associate her with this like cat memes. (laughs) And uh, we have a couple of really intelligent, women who are older than me or in some ways that i look up to and their opinion matters to me of like what do they think about it and you know one of them really loved it one of them really hated the piece and then there was a sort of more nuanced discussion about the mary carr stuff and someone on our list brought up the fact that she doesn't really even bring that up until pretty late in the piece right but also someone brought up that she leaves out some crucial information in that discussion that and that a lot of people do, namely that I think it is important to say that he apologized to Mary Carr and made amends with her before he died. And that's not brought up, but again, very touchy to even bring that up. So having the listserv to discuss that, the nuances of how other people deal with it I think a lot of people were reading it as Lockwood making the case that you can read Wallace with this information in mind. That she wasn't dismissive of it in either direction, Mm -hmm. really. And we don't want to minimize it. We don't want to defend him. But we also want to be able to have adult conversations about this stuff. And sometimes that's easier to do in email where you have a little sense of who the audience is versus even talking to you now like I'm very cautious of like sure. how how to say about some tricky subjects.
1: Well, I mean you're in a you're in a double bind, Matt, if you allow me to speak for you. We, we, which is both that you you want to be conscious about not about being aware of the allegations and in some cases documented evidence of misdeeds that Wallace committed, so not sounding like an asshole who's dismissive of that, so you have to be conscious of that, but you're also a figure in the world of David Foster wallace and you have to be conscious of, you know, not speaking for the community, but I would think not unintentionally pissing them off. Or I'm imagining myself into your shoes, and I would, I would be conscious about that.
0: Yeah, I think that's fair and that often when someone writes the words, David Foster Wallace fans, I feel like they're talking about me. Yeah. <laughs> and like, yeah. I, I'm a sort of stand in for some of this. And over the years, I have definitely learned um, from my mistakes too. Like I'm always willing to talk for better, or for worse. When he first died too, I felt like I was – interviewed by some media outlets about what do wallace fans think and yeah i made some mistakes about like talking to journalists in that regard and some ideas about what dfw fans are like i feel are still tied up with my identity in some weird
1: way Um, Yeah, I mean, I hear you. Like, I've never been in that position of either being asked to represent a community or just being put in a position where a journalist will frame me as representative of the community, even if I didn't frame that. Some of that's just the structure of journalism, right? It's like, you know, you have an article, you get two quotes or something like that. And depending on the needs of the journalist, it may frame what you said in a way that's not, in fact, fair to what you said. But also maybe you just say something that if you said it in one context would be totally fine, but then it gets the sort of imprimatur of a newspaper and suddenly it seems like you're putting on airs or something like that. Uh, and
0: to bring that to the Lockwood piece, that there is an issue of what's cool or not, and it's just not cool to be a fan of anything. Right. Oh. Ironically, her piece is just drenched in this like super cool, hip, irony Pose And it's like Mm -hmm. she is the cool, hot shit right now. And if you go on her Wikipedia page and read the superlative quotes about her, she is cool as shit and can basically do no wrong. And that's (laughs) great for her. But like that idea of what's cool, Wallace, I feel like fought against that with the new sincerity movement to say, don't hide behind this irony that if you are a fan of something, come out and say it. And he was often mocked for things that he liked and people didn't believe it does he really like you know this Stephen King book no he really did did he really like this shitty action movie no he really did and to say you're a fan of something just makes you super uncool and unhip and it's much better to say like you like something ironically
1: I I wholly agree with you and I think you're right about this piece that there's a coolness to it that that ultimately it's a kind of deficit, I think about one of them, when I was talking about the different stances you can take towards somebody like Wallace to sort of somebody who's that big, the one I didn't mention um, is that of a fan. And I think that's tricky because I I would say this, which is there's a version of being a fan that is also a way of evading that challenge of being authoritative, right? And, And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I'm not sure there's anything wrong with any of these choices, But I think it is very hard rhetorically to write well as a fan in a way that doesn't compromise your authority with the reader. And I say this having written an entire book about a writer I love and deciding very deliberately that I was going to not do the cool thing, that I was going to own up to my enthusiasm for love for this writer, for Dave Hickey. And I'm not the person to say whether I executed or not, but I will say I was aware that I was walking a tightrope. And and some of the reviews were like, you know, good book, but he's a little bit too much of a fan, you know. And, and I can try and argue against that, but I think rather than argue against their assessment of it, because I may have failed, I do think it's a tightrope. I would just say that I agree with you that if you can live there and write there with authority, it's a pretty powerful place to be, which I think is one of the things he did, which is one of the reasons why he's such a powerful writer. But it's hard to do. It is hard. It is easy to write as a fan if you're not trying to achieve a lot of authority with other people who are not fans. If all you care about is writing it as a fan for other fans, that's fine. That's a relatively easy thing to do. If you're trying to write as a fan in a way that will have an impact on people who are not fans, maybe not even familiar with the person you're talking, that is a hard thing to do.
0: Yeah. And, uh, you know, two things. One is, She, I felt like in the essay, maybe hints at this a bit by mimicking his style. There were some people who really were off put or caught off guard by her mimic what they thought was her mimicking his style, which I didn't really see it that way because I didn't know her style as much as some other people until the very end of the essay. And the essay sort of ends with this line that is does seem like a direct take from octet, which is a Wallace story she trashes earlier to say God, what does she call it? Uh she says I would like to put octet in my ass and turn it into a diamond. And <laughs> I don't
1: that seems like it's that's a That's funny. I'm going to give her that one. Uh, I just want its uh, own terms. That's I would say you'd like to put some of your acid to, to do a uh, diamond. Is, to a diamond. Is, well, I mean, I guess what it's saying is like, there's something there, but it wasn't sufficiently refined or something or put under enough pressure. Right. I mean, if you took it, if you right. took the metaphor straightforwardly. Um, right. And then she
0: says uh, at the very end of the essay, what is alive in it passes to the living. His attention becomes our attention. It can still be ours. Sure. Do with it what you will This sounds exactly like the end of Octet, which is about like a writer's dilemma. And at the end, it says, so decide. So that that seems very like that sort of Mm -hmm. tone sounds very similar. And it's like mimicking his style maybe is her way of, I don't know, being a fan in in a way. Um,
1: I will say this, which is. This, th- this essay contributes to the aura around Wallace. If you divided all things about Wallace into like a binary, which is things that sort of are, are likely to sort of diminish his legacy or perpetuate his legacy, I think this one pretty clearly is in the perpetuate his legacy column because it, it, it mystifies him in certain ways, it emulates him, it gives him 8,000 words. However complex or contradictory is its orientation towards... His personal failings—it certainly never says we can't, we shouldn't read this guy because he was an asshole or he was a misogynist or a predator or something like that. So, if you really just from the perspective of, do we want David Foster Wallace to be read in 50 years? i I'm, 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 I think it's pretty clear that this makes it not like pounds more likely, but ounces more likely. Like it's putting a little bit on that side of the scale, and so I don't, I Morgan. didn't.
0: It's interesting that she's trying to do that with The Pale King, because I don't know that too many other people really love that book as much as they love Infinite Jest. And so for her, she's almost saying, like, let's all collectively stop reading Infinite Jest, but you can read The Pale King. And she gets to some interesting points about attention and paying attention, which I do think is the like core message of that book. So she right. gets that part of it right. And I mean... The fact that we're having a discussion about a book that came out 12 years ago, if that's not relevance, I don't know what yeah. is. Like, Well, and of course, relevant. you know,
1: whatever she says, the impact is just going to be that people will read Infinite Jest. Like, they're not, I mean, we know, right? They're not going to read <laughs> right. The Pale King. They'll read Infinite Jest. They'll read Brief Interviews with Hideous Men. They'll read the stuff that's already canonical in Wallace. They're not going to read The Pale King. Maybe they'll read this novella that is the sort of ostensible subject under review, but in the way I'm just in the way these things get yeah. integrated into the kind of broader kind of stream of literature, like, the impact will be that. Because she certainly didn't make a, like, she didn't make a sort of amazingly persuasive case for either Pale King or this novella, just in the way that she dealt with it. What she made a case for was Wallace is still this giant with whom we have to reckon. I, to go back to the listserv a little bit, like... I'm curious what are the things these days, other than you know the Lauren Euler piece, the publication of this standalone novella, the Patricia Lockwood piece like what are what are things that kind of bubble up occasionally and increase the frequency of posts from twenty a month to twenty a day
0: hmm yeah that's it's interesting because there's still always people doing search in the archives, you know like if someone publishes something or writes something that has a lot of, well, this is his annotations on this book, or this is what Wallace said in a letter. I think there's a lot of interest around that stuff. And I also mentioned translations. So there's now a growing sort of community of Wallace translators. And as you can imagine, to translate Infinite Jest takes years off of your life yeah, and right. you don't want to just like waste that experience and move on to something else so a lot of those people stick around there's also some people who are always asking like what would david foster wallace have said about tiktok what would david yeah. foster wallace have said about this world's largest cruise ship that's coming out what would david foster wallace have said of trump those kind of questions are not as super interesting to me, but I think they do show his relevance that yeah. people are still thinking of him. There's also always people asking like, okay, if I liked Infinite Jest, what else is there? What's the next big thing? And Pension is still alive, not really publishing. Don DeLillo is still alive. His last book, pretty disappointing. So there's questions of what should you be reading? And it'll cop up to the fact that like, I've been for the past few years, like really advocating for this book called Novel Explosives by Jim Gower. And so have Jim come to the conference and like, I'm out trying to champion that book. Some other people were talking about Solenoid was a big book last year. So there, there's always a question of what's next after Wallace died it's coincided with when Bolano was being translated. Um, yeah. 2666 and Savage Detectives were out. So you know that that's always a question i think if you came out and said hey what are you guys all reading right now cuz we all know what we like to read that gets a lot of attention i would say
1: uh what's the best thread of all time on the listserv? Whew. i mean Man, let me take so the let me take the pressure off that not what's the best thread but what was one very memorable all right. All
0: right. thread Look, you, <laughs> some of my favorite ones are People asking, like, people who have just finished reading Infinite Jest and they have just discovered the list and they say, What the fuck just happened? And (laughs) they have a bunch of questions or theories of, like, okay, what happened to Hal? Is Joelle really disfigured? What happened in the graveyard scene? Like, they have all of these, like, frequently asked questions. And every now and then, you know, we'll get someone with, like, a really interesting Infinite Jest theory. And I think that's something that everyone loves. Like, let's actually talk about the plot of the book because it's so freaking complicated. So there was one memorable listserv post by this guy named Jason Preston who wrote this long thing about the good, the bad, and the ugly in Infinite Jest and comparing the graveyard scene where they're going to dig up a body in the good, the bad, and the ugly that relates to them going to dig up the body in Infinite Jest, which is, like you said earlier, a reference from the graveyard scene in Hamlet. That's more like a fan theory than an academic essay. But that kind of like enthusiasm around the plot of the book, I I love those.
1: Now this is like lightning round, my version of lightning round. It's (laughs) not really that lightning. I was talking about what I saw as like the failure of certain people to kind of deal with the, in, in their writing about Wallace, to deal with the influence of Wallace. What are the things, what are the few things that are, that do that best? Like what's the best essay about Wallace is it Zadie Smith is it the I'm gonna what is the end of the tour um, what's the name of the guy who wrote that um I mean that's a different well, that's kind a, of
0: thing that's a movie D- you're thinking David Lipsky book maybe.
1: The, um, well, yeah uh,
0: that's a really hard question because I know like these people are like friends of mine so I, <laughs> well you I can't know I'm not relate. asking what the worst like which, which, is which I'm asking which, what the best is, is. What's, child. what's a what's so, a uh,
1: really uh, good uh, one, uh, okay. one?
0: I'll give you two. One is a sort of popular one and one is a more academic one. Um, and for the popular one, I would say, you know, since Patricia Lockwood was talking about The Pale King, I would say one of the best things about The Pale King that was written was in GQ magazine by John Jeremiah Sullivan. And oh, when, he's good. When that he's good. And when that came yeah. out, you know, I felt like he had a really smart take on the book and it holds up and it, I wish that he had engaged a little bit more with the question of Wallace and and religion and like what Wallace was really trying to do in that book with boredom as a stand in for paying attention. But he gets it. And that's a great piece. The other one is I've mentioned this before to other people who often ask if you could just read one academic book on Wallace. To me, it's a book by a guy named David Herring. It's called David Foster Wallace Fiction and Form. And a lot of that deals with how The Pale King was put together, but also with what's really going on in Infinite Jest. So this is a core question that that gets asked. And David now is more of a film scholar and a writer himself. He's a novelist out of Liverpool, and he's a really smart, smart guy. And just his style of writing, I think, is really good. But there's so many great pieces on Wallace and so many other issues and topics it's hard for me to to limit it to just those
1: two how many people constitute the core community of the listserv
0: so on the listserv um i think we have probably 1500 email addresses in there and yeah but the core community
1: who who are the probably fewer than 100 probably fewer than 100 people um
0: that's but actually a th- lot th- to me. Th- I,
1: that actually is like, that's a lot. Like, I thought you were going to end up in like yeah. 15 or 20 so or it's something. Like 10. Like. No, no, no. It's That's actually a big, yeah, it's just one of my things. One of my, like, that if you really look back at most of the key intellectual or literary scenes or milieus, In Western history, my hypothesis is that it's probably usually a few dozen people or something like that, you know, and not making the claim that this is a key intellectual milieu historically, but making the claim, and I think this is evidence towards that fact that if you have 50 to 100 people who are sort of active, dynamic members in a community trying to sort of persist in developing or cultivating the legacy of a writer like that will have a huge impact that's a big community of people who really give a shit particularly well it depends it's not a big community if it's 13 year olds who love harry potter like it's a big community if it's 50 or 100 people who are very bright who know how to write who have institutional affiliations or connections like that's a big impact
0: yeah. Do you remember after Wallace died, he died in September 2008, the next summer in 2009, there was a big uh, like, group read of Infinite Jest called Infinite Summer. And it got a lot of Great publicity. Link. It was organized by this guy named Matthew Baldwin, but it had a lot of celebrities who joined in and did some guest posts. The guy from the Decembrists and... Uh, this guy, Kevin Gilfoyle was involved, Avery Edison, mm-hmm. it got a lot of publicity and there were some guest posts on there. I wrote a couple and my friend Maria Bustillos, mm-hmm. she wrote a long thing in there called the wonder of Wallace L that is about how great the listserv is. And again, I've known Maria going on 25 years and she captures this sentiment better than I could about the people who we have met all over the world um, mm-hmm. through this listserv. And yeah, it is the dominant like intellectual community of my life that I have met through that group. So I, I would say, look at that. Infinite Summer. Did you Do you remember that at all? org.
1: I remember the phrase. I don't remember anything in detail, but I'll go and look at that essay, 50 or 100 people who have institutional affiliations. I mean, that's, I didn't even mention specifically, like Maria Bustios is a literary critic who publishes in places right. of note, right? right? I don't know who she's writing for right. now, but like, and I think there's other folks in that category who are on the list. And it's not as if those people are writing about Wallace all the time, but it will t- over time, it will tell, and that matters in this sort of, and part of this is just my sort of back of the envelope kind of sociology of how influence plays out, which is that you guys quietly colonized a lot of institutions that wouldn't either know you're there or don't know you're there or, you know, know you're there but aren't aware of your passionate commitments or something.
0: Yeah, and that's the one thing I truly do care about is that network of people and Going back to our discussion of fans, this is something I am like rabidly defensive of is anyone who attacks the idea of David Foster Wallace fans, because in my mind, that's not an abstract lit bro. That is people who are my friends who I know from these conferences, many of them who are not white males like me, many of them who are, you know, women and people of color and lesbian gays bisexual trans members of our community who i'm protective of these people i don't want them grouped in with just being lit bros and i could give you some examples of the worst offenders here which i would say jonathan franzen in his essay farther away in the new yorker in 2010 i felt like one of the reasons he blamed wallace's suicide on wallace's seeking attention from his fans rather than from people who truly loved him so Mm -hmm. fuck you jonathan franzen (laughs)
1: um This is gonna lead with that. <laughs> <laughs> Oh. You know how they do those little clips at the beginning where it's like, you know, just a, like a goofy <laughs> moment? Open, right? It's, it's just going to be like, it's just going to be, so fuck you, Jonathan Franzen, and then, then the music will play and then i will say, welcome to Eminent Americans. Um, <laughs> Spoiler
0: alert, not the first time I've said that on my own podcast.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I, you know, I'm just thinking what you said just made me think about also like imagining Patricia Lockwood on the listserv. Like, I think for a lot of us, you, me, Patricia Lockwood, whomever else, there's this sort of back and forth between, you know, we want to be out there, we want the attention, we want to be writing for a sort of faceless public. And probably for Wallace too, right? We want to be writing for like a mass faceless public and have influence on the world. And then there's this other part of us, which is like, we just want to be holed up with the people who care about the same, exactly the same shit we do. And like talk to them about it right like who would who could who could bet possibly be better conversation partners for Patricia Lockwood in this essay or Lauren Lauren Euler in her essay than like the David Foster Wallace listserv you know and and, and it is a kind of just it's an interesting phenomenon and it, there's a tragedy to it which is like which is on some level they do want to be in the listserv having the conversation but then in some level they want to be they want to be out in the world as writers, as professional writers. And that's, and that is a difficult, it's difficult to be in both of those spaces. I think it would be very difficult verging on impossible to write the sort of authoritative David Foster Wallace essay and also be a member in good standing of the David Foster Wallace listserv. I'm not saying it's totally impossible. It would just be nearly impossible. And um, yeah,
0: it's a good, it's a good point. And I feel like that's something that, you know, this is a very different, it's an irrational fear of mine. It's just that like she, Patricia Lockwood would hate me (laughs) and, and yeah, I, and I think, you know, in the past I've had experiences where I have met people who have had this similar feeling for, and it, it's gone fine or you know we actually have a lot in common and and get along and then there's other people who are like no they actually just predisposed to not want to have anything to do with the whole community which is fine too again you know i'm not i'm not out there proselytizing for anyone to come and like talk to me about david foster wallace i don't need to like tell you to i don't need to like advocate for him that's why i'm bringing up these other books that i like that i feel like that do need attention and are by genuine artists, but it's also, it's very personal, very quickly for me, because like I say, I have spent so much time on this one topic that it's hard for me to separate out any sense of objectivity about it.
1: Uh, Well, I mean, I didn't have you on the podcast to be objective. (laughs) Good, (laughs) I
0: can't do that, so.
1: Um, Um, All right, I I think we Yeah, I think we did our business, Matt. I don't know, unless you have any final part. I think my lightning round questions um are over. I'm gonna found a uh I'm gonna found a Dave Hickey listserv. There will be four of us. Uh, it won't be as gratifying. There has to be I hear what you're saying about that you want it's a small number is most gratifying, but it's it's not too small a number, right? It has to be big enough to have life and vitality and and, and, and sufficient kind of backup you know managing editors such that if you're having an off week or month or year it doesn't die in your in your absence right, right. Uh, yeah and
0: there, there's plenty of people who you know I, I still have no idea who they are when they post yeah and and, the, and that's great too because you know i i think it's a sign that you are engaged in something vital whenever there's tons of people from all over different backgrounds who do want to talk about the same books as you do.
1: That's Maybe great. Patricia Lockwood is on the Listserv. She's just she, she posting under a pseudonym.
0: She could be.
1: You'll have to do, a, uh, do an algorithmic analysis of her her published text versus all the posts <laughs> on the Listserv. Yeah, so. what's my last... Well, I mean, here's, here's the question that I've asked of all of my guests, which is a little bit connected to the one I just asked, which is, look, five, ten years down the road, where do you think the discourse around... David Foster Wallace, will be relative to where it is today?
0: It's really hard for me to predict that. I do think people are always asking, like, I wonder what Wallace would have said about X, Y, or Z. Like, what would he have said about Trump or, you know, VR or something? And so that sort of relevance drives people to looking back into his work and also drives people to discover it. I think that Infinite Jest alone has a long shelf life in terms of scholarship. Uh, like I say, just like I would put it with a lot of these other maximalist works that are very rich in themes and literary, you know, devices. I expect we will see more, you know, books about him. There's one biography and the David Lipsky book. There's been talk of, you know, a book of letters of his. There's been talk of a. Uh, you know, more archival material being published. Um, so there's a lot of, like, that kind of research being done. And you, you could maybe look at, like, Updike or Mailer or Roth as an example where, you know, after their death, there's a big burst of activity. And then over time, there's more, you know, not just academic work, but maybe even some juvenilia that gets released or some, um, you know, but even after all that's done, I really think that the the scholarship around infinite jest the new people coming to the book it's being translated you know into farsi into turkish into serbian into russian and finnish and hungarian all these new readers coming to him the first thing that they really do want to read is infinite
1: jest so well, I, I think that's where it's at what i hear you saying is there's a local peak to come that like late 2020s you know there will be a sort of you know it won't be the height of you know probably the height was when he was alive but there will be sort of a, a local peak of fascination and sort of work around Wallace to come in the next five or ten years. I'll buy that. I'll I'll, I'll join you in that prediction. I think you're right. right. Alright, Matt, thank you. I've taken up too much of your time. Uh, We'll see each other in person when I'm back in Austin at some point in the distant future. Thanks for having me on. This was an episode of Eminent Americans, the podcast. If you liked the podcast, subscribe to it uh, and subscribe to the newsletter of the same name, Eminent Americans, the newsletter. Recommend it to your friends. Rate it on the platform on which you listen to it. Beam good vibes about it out into the universe. Thank you to my producer, Nick Worthen, and thank you to you, my listeners. This is a labor of love for me, and I do genuinely appreciate your attention, particularly if you've gotten all the way here to the end of all things. Feel free to email me with questions, thoughts, observations, even diatribes at djops at gmail.com. That's D as in Daniel, J as in James, ops as in ops or Oppenheimer at gmail.com. Have a great day.